0: Green Dreamer is a community-supported show backed mostly by listeners like you. If you're not listening in for the first time and you aren't low-income or struggling financially, we'd love to get your direct support so we can keep diving into these critical discussions, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you believe in and value this work, you can chip in starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support. And if you are a current or past supporter, I see you and We are so grateful. Thank you so much.
1: The way I maintain focus for myself and and, in an attempt to argue with others is to look at the material conditions of the people in whatever society or, or whatever group is being discussed. So I care much less about the diversity of representation than I do about the distribution of wealth and resources created in society.
0: That was Dr. Jared A. Ball, who is a father and a husband. After that, he is a professor of communication studies at Morgan State University in Baltimore and also the founder and curator of imixwhatilike.org, which is a multimedia hub of emancipatory journalism and revolutionary beat reporting. His book, The Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying Power, is available now and will be one of the key focuses of our conversation here. So listen on, this is a really crucial discussion where we talk about how the state and corporate world have shaped and influenced our educational institutions and the subject areas potentially getting the most funding and investments, how this myth of the Black buying power has been used to blame Black communities for their own poverty based on squandered economic opportunity, and so much more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe. And together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word.
1: As an activist, primarily, I mean, everything for me started with grassroots activism, the academic work was meant to sort of supplement all of that. And from that perspective, coming up in the Washington DC area, the Maryland area, and working within a variety of pan-Africanist grassroots, I guess you could say far left of center organizations and supporting those kinds of movements and politics and ultimately the radical side of what was considered the hip-hop movement or hip-hop activist movement of the late 90s and early 2000s, and the political prisoner movement. From all of that sort of uh, collection of ideas and work came an interest in what are considered all of the radical ideologies and scholars and activists. And as I entered college and then grad school in Africana Studies uh, and then to uh, a doctorate in media studies or journalism and media studies, I just looked to find the the traditions in those fields that produced the, the ideas that many of the activists and organizations that I worked with and aspired to, to support grappled with. And specifically, in uh, while <laughs> completing the PhD, and and frankly uh, having uh, ideological conflict with the uh, administration at the university, and being uh, exiled to uh, a hinterland office, I happened to come across a stack of communication theory journals that were literally being you know slated for for disposal. And in reading one of them, I came across uh, Dr. Hemant Shaw's work on emancipatory journalism, which talked about, long story short, the practice of journalism and media production as part of grassroots anti-colonial activist organizational work. And that particular approach pushed the boundaries of acceptable Uh, journalism philosophy in the United States to a a place that I felt was more appropriate and excited to work with and tried to apply that work to the grassroots journalism projects I was developing in organizations that I was working with or supporting. And it sort of has since driven the perspective that I I begin with in interpreting uh, the relationship between media and journalism and oppressed people to begin with. And then Specifically, the the relationship that media uh, have to maintaining a colony and repressing anti-colonial struggle.
0: So I know a key focus of yours is U.S. propaganda. I'm wondering if you learned this through your communication and media studies within our U.S. education institutions, or if you've had to go outside of that realm in order to gain these insights.
1: No, all, all. Uh, I would argue all real education is extra institutional, and the mainstream. That was part of the reason why I was in that exiled office to begin with. Was my insistence that the range of ideas being offered to us as the ca- the canon in media studies was too narrow, mm-hmm. and too Eurocentric, too fallocentric to uh, uh, liberal in the you know anti-progressive or radical sense of the term. And uh, so all of the, a bulk at least, the majority of the, the ideas I was looking to bring in came from non-traditional media or journalism or academic, broadly speaking, sources. So for instance, I, despite being Outside of traditional canonical study of mainstream U.S. academia, Franz Fanon is extremely popular. But the approach that I borrow from him before even getting to the anti-colonial uh, analysis is his point that he makes often, or that he used to make often, about not wanting to be pigeonholed to a particular discipline. Uh, that he felt that we should look to be interdisciplinary in ways that uh, traditional acad- Western academia don't accept. So... I was looking to bring in, you know, non-traditional, anti-colonial, revolutionary, radical sources to the discussion of U.S. practices and philosophy of journalism and media study. And that wasn't, you know, wasn't uh, uh, widely accepted. So I had to go outside. In fact, one of, I, you know, I often make this point, One of the the leading scholars we were studying under was himself at the time, considered internationally to be a a top-rated, well-regarded sociologist who confessed to me after a a debate in class (laughs) uh, one day in the hallway, and and I'll never forget this, he said that he, a British-born sociologist, uh, said that he had never heard of Frantz Fanon and never read a word of W.E.B. Du Bois. And I still, to this day, struggle to to conceive of how anyone could could reach that point, regardless of their their politics, uh, after a lifetime in academia. But it said a lot about the uh, the ideological approach or the limitations within our school, and I think maybe, though, uh, in some cases, it's an exaggerated case where a sociologist would not have read a word of Du Bois... Who is at least considered by many to be the quote father of American sociology, or to never have heard of Franz Fanon? Uh, I mean, it, it 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 you know boggles the mind. But it speaks to to the to the limitations that that were being imposed on us. And this was coming from someone con- considered by many to be the most progressive media theorist in the in the in the school. Uh, So anyway, so I said I said a long answer to say that, you know, I had to go and I think everyone uh, should be encouraged to go outside of of established institutional canonical uh, texts to find the answers to the questions that they have.
0: Well, today you're a professor of communication studies at Morgan State University, which is an HBCU, Historically Black Colleges and Universities. For listeners who are not familiar, these are basically institutions of higher education in the United States that were established before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, with the intention of primarily serving the African American community. I'd love for us to talk more about our academic institutions, how they've shaped our younger generations as well as how that's evolved over the decades as a product of being embedded within a capitalistic system. But first, I'd love for our listeners to get a better idea of the role that HBCUs played in supporting the civil rights movement and supporting their Black students to play their roles within the movement.
1: Well, this is uh, somewhat of a, a still debated topic, uh, and my admitted bias is looks to looks more critically at the relationship HBCUs have had to both, the, well, specifically to the civil rights movement, but to the broader project of black liberation. I mean, we do have to remember that HBCUs were established and maintained, often still named after, funded by. And ideologically suited or geared toward a a white male elite and uh, and with an instructional mission to them to prepare a, a black middle class to quietly advance itself from slavery into mainstream American social and economic life. Uh, so it, they were never developed to advance liberation struggles, to advance radical theory thinking, critical thinking. They were they were they've never been as institutions designed to be progressive in that sense. So, uh, as one of my colleagues has talked about in his work, uh, this is Dr. Jelani Favors, in, in one of his in his new book on on the subject, he talks about there being the at least dual tracks of of preparing black people to be middle-class aspirants to, to uh, take the step up from, again, reconstruction and enslavement, et cetera, into to the new economic and social reality of the United States. Uh, they also had the, the, the sort of second mission of promoting black pride, black cohesiveness, black unity, And but not necessarily with an aggressive, radical political agenda. So by by the time we're talking about the civil rights era, you know, students who became, for instance, in in D.C. at Howard University, a lot of the student activism that occurred there came uh, uh, in spite of the university administration, in spite of a lot of the student parents who were saying we didn't send you there to become radicals. We sent you there to become the black bourgeoisie. Uh, So students had to be inspired by the broader movement happening out in the the larger society. It was the black liberation struggle in the streets that brought black studies into university campuses, including HBCUs, where they did not originate, by the way. And even to this day, uh, the the more progressive or radical uh, Africana studies programs have traditionally taken or existed in white, even in elite white universities, oddly enough. So The HBCU to this day continues to have a very, uh, I would argue, uh, uh, contradictory relationship to these struggles where they, on the one hand, want to promote black pride, black unity, a vague sort of as the president of our university put put out where, you know, Morgan State, where black lives have always mattered. But at the same time, they are not spaces where they are uh, breeding grounds or organizational grounds for radical movements. You know, Morgan State, you know, at one point denied W.E.B. Du Bois access to the university for him being too radical, and then at the end of his life, as the civil rights movement, you know, started going, in, in started kicking off, invited him back. And universities have had this relationship with, with, with black political figures uh, for years, and a lot of the more luminary black uh, scholars that have passed through these institutions have left with great acrimony. So there's there there's again you know it's a little bit of a complicated relationship uh and but I think it is important just to to conclude here that it, it that these institutions were not designed and are not designed to produce activists and activism and have uh, uh often responded to as of most institutions in this country to the activism that uh, starts and and largely kicks off and and ignites in the street
0: right so This again shows that a lot of the key learnings that we need really come from outside of these institutions. And if we were to follow the money of who and what governmental agencies have been funding our universities over the past decades, what do we find out about how the roles of our educational institutions have shifted or even become more political with ulterior motives from the state, besides purely aiding students in their educational paths towards their highest potentials?
1: Oh, absolutely. So, and I'm going to pull this up here because I he his the title of his book deserves proper credit. My former colleague at Morgan State, uh, now uh, at another university, Dr. Jelani favors in his book "Shelter in a Time of Storm: How Black Colleges Fostered Generations of Leadership and Activism." He, to be fair, he and I you know don't even agree with the interpretation of his own work uh so uh, my bias is i want to put on the table here is clear but he even has a section in his book where he he looks at uh, some scholarship that shows that uh in the post black power era uh, of the 60s and 70s uh, uh the funding to historically black colleges and universities came with a decided decided hard sciences bent influence bias uh, behind them. In other words, all of the fields, all of the humanities and social sciences where critical thinking and oppositional concepts might develop or be fostered were defunded in favor of, again, the hard sciences uh, with a lot coming from the defense department funding. To this day, we we see uh, a lot of Defense Department funding coming in, even uh, in, at times to communications uh, studies, in attempts to, you know, I would argue co-opt or incorporate the work that we do into uh, military strategy. Uh, and in fact, even the the uh, one of the first heads, if not the first head of the Africa Command, was General Kip Ward, who came from who was a graduate of Morgan State University. So we're even producing the very military leadership that, uh, I think paradoxically in this case goes back and helps militarize and and control the militaries of, of, of the entire African continent. So absolutely. So, so my point is, is, and, and Dr. Favors and I have had some, some interesting and, and very friendly and cordial and, 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 you know, loving disagreements here. But my argument has been, this is part of what has, uh, to me, supported my my argument uh, in terms of how we need to interpret the history of the historically black college and university. They were not developed by black people for black people. They were developed to serve the functions of the state. And when it, was, it, by the way, there's even the, the classic book by the white, um, I forgot his exact role in the state, but William Corson, uh, who wrote a book about his uh, sort of undercover study. He he went undercover teaching at at Howard University, uh, at least at Howard University, and did a study to in the '60s or early '70s to assess the direction Black students were going politically and he essentially said that the, historic, the those attending historically black colleges and universities were even to the extent that they were if i remember correctly even to the extent that they were engaging civil rights or or, or black liberation weren't doing so on the most radical basis but that this could change and deserve to be you know watched he cited uh, examples where where uh, there was a, a liberalizing or a softening that so to speak of, of movements on on campus but but the point being there has been a concern from the state from the beginning, throughout history, and I would argue through this point about the shift in funding to where today it is clear that uh, uh, STEM—you know, science, technology, engineering, and mathematic fields—get all of the the serious funding, certainly relative to the to the social sciences and humanities. With the idea that this will encourage more state focused research, less critical thinking, less you know chances for people to to be radicalized by their work on campus and I think that this is anyway I anyway all of this I think points to support for at least my biased position that uh, as others have pointed out William Watkins famously in his book about the white uh, the white architects of black universities, pointing out that these were places to create a black bourgeoisie at best, a a black middle class that would, if not overtly, covertly or indirectly tacitly speak to the rest of the black community, that you don't need to become radical, you don't need to engage in radical politics, just get a degree and you can sort of uh, advance uh, as we are are demonstrating here. And I I think largely that has uh, been a successful part of the apparatus of responses by the state to black liberation efforts.
0: So there are a lot of nonprofits um, in the U.S. and around the world focused on supporting education for children who might not have had access, and that is, of course, a really great cause, but I do feel like this discussion points to the importance of also asking, what education? You know, are we just supporting these children to go into cookie-cutter institutions meant to feed into the needs and desires of the state and the corporate world, or are we really empowering the kids to fully maximize their potentials and discover who they want to be in this world?
1: Listen, I mean, just as, you know, to one of the earlier questions, just as propaganda has been, I think, overtly and consciously uh, marginalized in in conventional media and journalism study, the role of the nonprofit in relationship to activism has been marginalized, which is was was. I guess paradoxically or oddly enough, the goal originally of uh, those who encourage nonprofit relationships to, in this case, black liberation struggles uh, from the beginning, Uh, most notably in the Nixon era in the 70s. I mean, this was an overtly advocated strategy specifically to make sure that black politics could be managed, could be kept out of developing specific political parties or political platforms with with, uh, campaigns attached to them and to limit the range of acceptable politics and discussion and ideas within uh, black activist circles. So uh, how, how and, I, and, and at this particular moment, I think more than ever, we're at a point in time where media and journalism will discuss uh, existing problems more than ever, but do more than ever to limit the interpretation of those problems or to rebrand the symbol uh, or image of those problems in the public sphere. So if, uh, if for instance, if people call for defunding the police, there is a campaign developed quickly that has actually, actually been developing slowly for a number of years now to to move public funding of the police to private security forces, to privatize policing, so to speak, uh, a Koch brothers platform plank for, for at least a decade at this point. So, so this is part of the problem that we have is is again not a discussion of a problem, police violence in this case, but how that problem is going to be addressed, in, uh, interpreted, responded to, and what policies will be developed in in, in exchange, and to the extent that nonprofits allow for uh, uh, the most elite in this society through corporations or individuals or private equity groups to, to fund these nonprofits with, their, with all the, the, the compendium of rules that limit their ability to engage on a grassroots level in any meaningful way. Uh, uh, they've, I think, you know largely been successful in, in, in again, limiting the, the range of discussions uh, uh, and actions being taken and the impact that, the, that the, those actions might have.
2: Save the river, save the seas Save the mother and her family Can you take what you want and say that we are free? If you put oil in the water, we won't sit quietly And they were singing, stand up
0: All this really reminds me of this quote that you recently wrote on social media that I took note of um, for myself. You said, we see now that among the biggest problems facing us is not the erasure of problems, but their reinterpretation as issues to be solved by those benefiting from their creation. Still, Frantz Fanon had it right that colonialism doesn't erase. It freezes in quote unquote colonial form the culture of the colonized and it projects it back as so to testify against the colony, end quote. So in a way, does this mean that black and brown people who've so-called made it in this exploitative capitalistic system and have earned positions of power, wealth, or fame may have been propped up and used against the greater movement of racial and social justice?
1: But Well, absolutely. And this isn't uh, a matter of opinion or speculation, this is documented fact that uh, uh, going back decades, the black celebrity has been developed specifically to manage the in, the limits of public opinion. Uh, I've joked in, in my classrooms to be provocative uh, to make the point, for instance, that uh, the only reason Snoop Dogg's career has been maintained has been so that he would be present and on scene and popular enough and authentic enough to uh, uh, speak out against Colin Kaepernick and to suggest that taking a knee in those kinds of politics were unnecessary. Uh, same thing for the Jay-Z, that Jay-Z's career has you know, less to do with his talent Uh, or his skill on the mic and more to do with the limitations he can impose on the public opinion of his audience so that he would be on hand to help gentrify Brooklyn with nominal ownership of the Nets, to be on hand to again speak out against taking a knee and Colin Kaepernick and to suggest that minority, pun intended, ownership of NFL football teams somehow uh, akin to reparative justice. And this is not necessarily even to be critical of of these individual celebrities. It is to simply point out the function of celebrity and to just note the history of uh, the careers uh, that have been destroyed for all of those who try to blend what I argue cannot be blended in this context. That is, one cannot be uh, simultaneously rich, famous, and radically political without having something happen to their career or their life. And the history of this, to me is undeniable and literally without exception that as soon as anyone particularly black or brown but white for that matter too as soon as anyone tries to blend their fame relative wealth and radical politics all into one effort uh strange things and worse seem to happen to their careers and uh, this is because it's very clear whether you take the official mainstream cultural studies or media studies approach to the star system uh, the the or the mechanism or really the the process in Hollywood and and really music industry as well of just creating a handful of stars and re using them to reproduce a successful product, uh, or whether you look at the the historic role of propaganda, state intelligence agency involvement in in everything from our news to entertainment, the the documentation is pretty clear. There is an organized structure to celebrity and fame and those who. Uh, as they say, draw or paint outside the lines uh, are put outside the line uh, permanently.
0: Today, diversity and racial justice has been top of mind for a lot of people. So as more corporations are creating diversity boards and hiring Black or Indigenous people of color as executives, and as the political parties are amplifying the voices of Black and brown politicians that share their ideologies, I wonder how much of this sort of tokenism is just to placate the public? Because it's much harder to hate on the same exploitative system, corporation, or political organization. Organization when they're represented by Black, Indigenous, people or people of color, who we very much wish to find success when there is so much racial inequity. So I'm wondering what you think about this and how we should navigate these topics when racial and social justice are our end goals, and what should we be wary of?
1: Well, for me, I... The way I maintain focus for myself and and, in an attempt to argue with others is to look at the material conditions of the people in whatever society or or whatever group is being discussed. So I care much less about the diversity of representation than I do about the distribution of wealth and resources created in society. Uh, So if we just look at the last uh, 40 or 50 years, it has been quite clear That economically, uh, working people have maintained the exact or worse, slightly worse level of cost of living relative relation to cost of living and pay while producing more product and wealth for those who own, uh, as Mark said, the means of production. And yet we have more diversity in media and uh, the political world than ever. We have even had a nominally black president while more wealth was transferred to the top 1% than ever, while wars were extended not only in the so-called Middle East but to the African continent, while more black people uh, lost their jobs and suffered police violence and were incarcerated and the Black Lives Matter and anti-police movement emerged or reemerged under this eight years of a black president. So that, to me, is the way to do it. So as we're hearing now, as people want to assess what vice presidential candidate uh, Joe Biden will select and the question of a black woman keeps coming up, if you are uh, one who holds left of center politics, you can't, for instance, look at Susan Rice or Kamala Harris seriously beyond their labeling as black women as anything uh, of an advance politically, their political track records were they uh, white men would be castigated by the black community and dismissed easily uh, by any progressive as unworthy of support. So that to me is the easiest way to maintain focus, regardless of anything, whether it's uh, people's preference for Claims that social media have leveled the playing field for people's voices being heard or whether people want to argue that uh, because there's more black celebrity uh, there or, or a black president at one point, there's an ad- been an advance. I'm only looking at the, the the material indicators. How much are people being paid? How much are people working? Where is the wealth being create that's being created going? Where is, are, is all the violence being uh, monopolized and all of those indicators and others point to declining conditions as, it, as, as, as they relate to black people in this country and brown people and many others for that matter. And that's the only way I think we can look beyond the symbolism and not be, be so easily fooled.
0: To further this, your latest book, *The Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying Power*, offers a history of and proof against the claims of buying power and the impacts of this myth has had on understanding media, race, class, and economics in the United States. For generations, black people have been told they have what is now said to be more than one trillion dollars of buying power, and your book argues that commentators have misused this claim, largely to blame black communities for their own poverty based on squandered economic opportunity, end quote. How exactly was the concept of buying power created initially in the late 19th century? And how has it been misused and weaponized against poor people, specifically black communities?
1: Well, the shortest answer I can give is that at the end of the 19th century, the business and political elite in the United States wanted to find a way to address the increasing social unrest among working people who were very clearly asking questions about what, what I was just talking about. And they were saying we are producing more wealth and more product and the money we're being paid is not matching or increasing at the same rate. Our buying power, our ability to spend in the economy is not, is not increasing. So to respond, part of the response at least, was for specifically the Chamber of Commerce to develop cost of living surveys to more or less figure out at what rate can we pay working people to keep them from rebelling and still able to shop enough to support the functioning of the economy. And that was the purpose of the initial cost of living survey and the initial development as a concept within within uh, uh, government and marketing circles of, of of what we now know of as buying power. It, it did have a, a pre-existing history as a concept uh, that more or less was just organized or codified, uh, uh, institutionalized in this moment at, at the end of the 19th century uh, within the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, and the eventual development of the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the cost of living surveys, and then within that, the buying power concept. Um, what happened in the 1950s, on, after, in, the, in the post-World War moment, uh, as the country's elite were trying to rebrand America as the single superpower and capitalism as the pathway to get there, and with the concept of democracy to capitalism, and the concept of shopping and consumption to citizenship and within a, a goal of of refashioning re-fa- society from producing for war to producing for commerce, there was a need to, <clears throat> as a subset of that, uh, rebrand black America as uh, having potential within this newly singularly dominant world power that wanted to project itself as the model for all the world to follow and to show even it's formerly enslaved is now being able to access a a growing and opening economy and as more black people were accepted into the workforce during and after world war ii uh relative to the horrific conditions suffered in the past there was a sort of expansion and both a black media uh, a business elite developed with John H. Johnson of Ebony magazine leading the way. And he and they wanted to unite with the Chamber of Commerce and the business community of the United States to capture what is by today become somewhere around five hundred or more billion dollars in ad revenue. And to do that, they needed to be able to project a black community is not becoming more radical, but becoming more consumptive or or, or consumption based. and uh, uh, and having a buying power that could support the the advertising he hoped to 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 recruit, and as a result, what has gone on uh, weaponized further under the Nixon Nixon uh, administration with the goal of redefining black power as black entrepreneurialism and black capitalism. The concept got uh, to to this point today. Redefined as something that is not what it is meant as it, as it as it is in its origins as a marketing uh, an advertising mechanism to bring advertising revenue to commercial media outlets uh, rebranding that to something that as as meaning uh, um, uh, black liberatory possibility. So power is misunderstood often because of the bad journalism that is produced by the commercial media, often the black commercial media outlets that uh, benefit from the myth uh, in such a way that misleads its audience and then it gets regurgitated throughout punditry and journalism and activist circles and, and all throughout the black public political sphere as a, as a pathway to power and liberation And what it really is, essentially, is a marketing method and mechanism to bring ad revenue to Black, in this case, but commercial media in general.
0: Especially with the heightened national and global awareness of Black Lives Matter right now and racial social justice, a lot of people and media outlets are saying to support Black-owned businesses. And that may very well be really helpful to these businesses that traditionally have been disadvantaged for all sorts of reasons. And also, you've said in a previous interview that having few dollars circulate among Black communities and poor communities isn't how you build up wealth. You need money invested out, and it has to move. What is the underlying misunderstanding that most people have about capitalism that leads people to believe that how you support Black and impoverished communities to build wealth is by supporting Black-owned businesses? And in addition to that direct support that we very much um, should contribute to, where should we direct more of our focus to?
1: Well... I'll I'll start with the with, with the last part there. I think our focus needs to be on policy that redistributes the wealth that society creates. So in this case, I point to the gross domestic product of the United States, which before this crisis was roughly twenty trillion dollars, and say that that is the value of all the goods and services and products bought, sold, and purchased, uh, uh, spent in a, in, a, in a given year. And instead of that, redounding to the to the top one percent or one tenth of one percent, it should be through public policy and law redistributed in a variety of ways to uh, to comfort and and ease life for everyone. You know, because underneath that is the fundamental misunderstanding of not only how capitalism works, but really how the political economy functions, the relationship of the political apparatus to the economic uh, apparatus. Uh, And the relationship in this specific case to uh, uh, between public policy and wealth creation and redistribution. So wealth is not created as is famously and falsely imposed uh, on many communities by circulating dollars within a community. First, in this part, I don't even put in the book, but really, honestly, the, the, the reality is that that underneath all wealth accumulation is military conquest so what what is always left out of the discussion is the initial conquest, and 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 this is the point that Fanon and one of the reasons why you have to go to the margins to find this analysis. You know what Fanon said: simply, colonialism is the theft and conqueror the conqueror and theft of land. Period. So that that is what precipitates all of everything else. So there has to first be that military conquest of land and resources. On on top of which, then you can develop the, the the businesses and the public policy, the laws that regulate and give pro- permission to those businesses, and the taxation and the tariffs and all the things that go into determining, again, how wealth is created and who gets it. That is a public policy decision. So so specific to the point about the circulating dollar. This is just from from a basic understanding of capitalism. Uh, of Marx's, for instance, critique of capital, uh, and uh, or just a basic understanding of the economy that that money has to be uh, wealth is created through investment and a return on that investment. Uh, it is not it, it is not generated through the circulating of dollars among poor people. Um, <clears throat> so for uh, uh, for black communities to collectively improve, Uh, their wealth. They would have to be able to invest what little exists on the global market, have the returns come back and be reinvested back in the community. And that requires a level of capital that black people don't have. It requires a level of political organization that black and many other people do not have. Uh, and this is why the elite continue and from the Nixonian era in particular on have really weaponized the argument around getting black people to to, to focus on uh, the fantasy of black capitalism and entrepreneurialism as a pathway to collective advance instead of uh, uh, as a distraction from a focus on the public policy apparatus, which the elite at this point have complete control over, which is why, you know, in many ways they're happy to uh, uh, you know, put Kente cloth on and take a knee, or to put Black Lives Matter on top of Amazon and Netflix, but have no public policy uh, platform or plan to redistribute the wealth that is created in this society and to give more than the paltry few hundred dollars that have been given uh, one time while creating six trillion dollars for themselves. Uh, this is the, the hustle that, that that undergirds the argument that I'm trying to make in, in my book, and that I would argue we need uh, to better understand all of us in terms of how capitalism works to understand that the only real power any of us have is in the power of the people, to put it in the in past generations uh, phrasing, but the power of people to move, to organize, to develop social movements, political movements that would threaten and eventually assume power. That's the only power that we have. This, there is no economic path. There is no entrepreneurial path for black people or any other group to parity or, or equality or power of any kind.
0: So all of this goes to show, again, the myth of the black buying power as addressed in your book, but also the flaws in this economic system that's set up to require constant growth and consumerism in order to even be maintained and sustained. So we not only have to make sure that our activism goes beyond consumerism to politics, but we also have to be critical of this system itself that was set up to basically exploit people and the earth's resources. And the last thing is, I'd love for you to share anything else you wanted to share with our listeners that I didn't get to ask you about and your cost to action for them in terms of how they can best support Black liberation, racial and social justice, and of course, your personal work as well.
1: Well, i there's really nothing I'd, I'd like to add, other than to just let people know that they can follow me at I mix what I like uh, on all your relevant social media, and I would invite people to i what I like dot org, where they can not only download uh, the e version of this book for free uh, that the publisher has made available uh, in in response to the uprisings in the streets that are ongoing, and they'll also find at i what I like uh, a nearly endless Warehouse and catalog of audio, video, and written essays that deal with all variety, vari- all varying aspects of that question about black liberation and how we get to it and to the liberation of all humanity. Uh, a lot of interviews, a lot of discussions, panels, uh, um, uh, collective activist and, and academic work being produced there as well, uh, and underground emancipatory journalism that that people can connect to. And then and then finally, I think that the only other suggestion I have is to do, as the late great Kwame Ture advocated, and which is why he was excised, that is Stokely Carmichael from the film Selma, is that we organize. Join an organization, uh, engage in political education, get offline, get grassroots, engage all the radical traditions of all the communities that whoever you want to identify with or, or, or an, uh, uh, ally with— And that's where the answers and the solutions will come. I don't have one. No individual has them and nothing that would be said publicly would be of any more value than that. Uh, So that's what I would encourage and and often, in, in fact, always do.
0: Well, we are coming to a close here, so I wanted to reiterate again, um, Dr. Ball's website you can find at org, and you can also find him on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at imixwhatilike. Dr. Ball, it's been an honor to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us today and for all your leadership and education in helping us to better understand this fight towards... Racial justice and black liberation. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers?
1: First of all, thank you very much. I I greatly appreciate uh, the invitation and the work you're doing. Well, one thing I always I always say when I sign off with the work I do t- to USA Peace, like Fred Hampton said, if you're willing to fight for it, so peace and and uh, you know catch you all in the whirlwind.
0: This is Green Dreamer and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. If you've learned from or have been inspired by this episode, we would love to have your direct support starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support so we can keep this show going and accessible to the public. Today's song feature is Fight For You by Ray Zaragoza, whose work you can find at rayzaragoza.com. And I also want to thank our audio engineer, Scott Donnell, and our post-production content manager, Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate your support so much. Thank you for tuning in and uh, committing to learning with us. And I will catch you soon in the next episode.